Hi there, I'm Michelle Weckman. I work over at the University of Iowa in family medicine, psychiatry, and I do hospice and palliative medicine. I'm going to talk to you today about end-of-life issues in dementia. So this is just my disclosure statement. I have nothing to disclose, or as I like to say, I haven't gotten into bed with any drug companies yet. However, since I do research, I do maintain the right to get into bed with a drug company in the future if I need to for funding. So what are we going to talk about today? I wanted to start with a couple of basic premises. So first, dementia, I mean, as you guys all know, it's a progressive neurodegenerative life-limiting condition that's been, as we are aging as a society, been increasing in prevalence, and it has a series of complex needs. These patients are not always easy to take care of. Palliative care in general is not often well addressed in patients with dementia. In fact, it's often very poorly addressed. Um, we don't do a good job of treating symptoms such as pain in these patients, and we often subject these patients to burdensome interventions, particularly at the end of their life when we should be focusing on comfort and things of that nature. So what is dementia? Just so we're all starting on the same playing field. So dementia is this gradual loss of memory combined with trouble with some other thinking skills. So maybe they have trouble planning what they're going to be doing, doing a grocery list, doing their um, checkbook. But the thing that you have to also have is in addition to problems with memory and problems with thinking, is you have to have a change in your ability to function. So you need impaired social or occupational function. So the dementia or those memory and thinking changes need to impact somebody's life in some way. So one of the things that we often notice is that dementia or these problems are more evident to other people, to the family members, and may not be evident to the patient himself or herself. The other thing with dementia is you need to make sure that it's actually dementia. In some degrees, dementia is a diagnosis of exclusion. We need to look for other medical causes that are potentially treatable. So is there a depression going on that's causing the memory changes? Are they um, drinking a lot of alcohol that's causing the memory impairment? Do they have a delirium? So you want to make sure that nothing else is going on. And so this is just a brief slide talking about different types of dementia. Um, the largest type that we think about is Alzheimer's dementia, followed by vascular dementia, and then Lewy body. That being said, I think this is simplistic in the sense that I think most dementias, or quite a few of them, are actually combined in the sense of you have a patient who has both vascular components and an Alzheimer's type dementia. Okay, so why do we care about dementia? So we care about it, or I care about it, because of its societal cost. So currently in America, one out of three patients over the age of 65 will die with uh, dementia. Worldwide, we have uh, over 35 million patients with dementia, and this number is only expected to increase. So over the next 40 years, they expect that number is going to increase to about 115 million. So as we get older, we're going to see more dementia as people are living longer. And how much does it cost? So the estimated cost for dementia in the United States alone in 2010 was $215 billion with a B. And just to break that down a little bit more, with Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's is believed to affect at the moment over 5 million Americans, which means 2.5 to 3 million spouses are impacted as well. And what does that cost us? 
that comes at a cost of about $56,000 per year per person. And if you think about somebody with Alzheimer's living for eight to 10 years, that's more than a half a million dollars per person in costs for everybody that has Alzheimer's. So if I had a soapbox right now, I'd be standing on it. This is one of my soapbox slides. So I think it's incredibly important for us to think about dementia as a terminal diagnosis and to express that to patients and families because that's exactly what it is. At some point, people with dementia stop living with that dementia and they begin dying from that dementia. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on because I think it's really hard for us to recognize when that dying starts and I think it's crucially important for us to be able to recognize that. So this is another soapbox slide for me. So dementia robs the patient of the ability to make end-of-life decisions. At some point, as the dementia progresses, people are not going to be able to take part in their healthcare decisions, and they're not going to be able to let us know what they want. So if we don't have these conversations with patients and families early in the disease process, we lose the chance to have these conversations with them at all. So what I really like to encourage is having these goals of care discussions and having advanced care planning occurring early in the illness process so that patients have the opportunity to actually engage and to let family members and to let the healthcare professionals know what they want so that we can better match the services that we're offering with patient and family goals. So from a physical standpoint, when and how do I start to know to think about dementia patients as nearing the end of their life? So you see this common physical progression. So it starts with food refusal. Um, they may not want to eat. If you offer them food, they may shut their mouth and not take it. Um, from there, it typically moves on to problems with swallowing. So they may have dysphagia, they may have choking. You then proceed to weight loss. And then how I look at it is they basically lose their ability to protect themselves. So you start getting secondary infections. And this is what they die from. They die from the secondary infections or they die from the traumas that happen because they fall and they break a hip or something of that nature. So what is the most common cause of death in patients with dementia? It happens to be pneumonia. Looking at elderly patients who got pneumonia, they discovered that patients who had cognitive impairment um, had a six-month mortality of about 53%. So half of the patients with cognitive impairment impairment died after having pneumonia, while only 13% of patients who were cognitively intact died. So dementia and pneumonia go hand in hand for cause of death. And the other thing that we see commonly is hip fracture. So patients with severe dementia who fall and break a hip or who stand and break a hip, half of them are, as well are dead within the next six months. So looking at this a little bit more completely, Mitchell did a study looking at 22 different nursing homes on the East Coast. She looked at over 300 residents with advanced dementia and looked at them for 18 months. Over that time course, more than half of them died um, and the majority, 94% of those deaths occurred in the nursing home. And what did they die from? They died from pneumonia, they died from eating problems, they died from um, febrile illness. So these are those same things that we see in the list, common dementia progression. And she also looked at symptoms that were distressing to the patients. And what did she find? She found that as the patients neared their death, their symptom burden increased. Pain was as high as 40%. Dyspnea was as high as 46%. 
The other thing she found was that as patients neared their death, burdensome interventions increased. And these are things like hospitalizations, emergency room visits, IV medications, tube feedings. Um, in fact, almost half of the patients had some sort of burdensome intervention in the last three months of life. The one positive thing she found was that when the patients with dementia, when their proxies understood what was actually going on, they understood the prognosis, they understood the clinical complications, they were less likely to okay or to ask for burden, burdensome interventions. And so this goes back to my soapbox slide earlier, that if we have these conversations, we are able to impact the outcome of care at the end of life. So of those residents with advanced dementia who died, only 30%, one out of three, received hospice referrals, and even less than that actually enrolled in hospice. And what we see with the timing of referrals is that either hospice isn't an accepted part of the culture, or we're not good at recognizing when somebody with advanced dementia is moving into that dying, that dying stage. So one quarter of these referrals occurred within the last week of life. More than half of the referrals occurred within the last 90 days of life. So we're not doing a good job at sending patients with dementia to hospice early enough. So what are some of the unmet needs in patients who have dementia? So when you ask somebody how they want to die, in general, they all say they want to die at home. Yet most people die in a, a hospital or a care center. You know, I've asked a lot of people this question, and most of them say, I'd like to die at home. Sometimes they say surrounded by loved ones. Sometimes they say in my sleep. The favorite answer that I ever got is that somebody looked at me and said, I want to die while skydiving. I looked at him. I thought about it for a second, and I thought, what about the people on the ground? What happens to them if you die while skydiving? Still, most people want to die at home, and they want to die in their sleep. The other thing we notice, there's a lot of unrecognized symptoms and untreated symptoms. We'll talk more about this as we go on, but pain in these patients in particular is often unrecognized and un or undertreated. Um, because of the dementia, oftentimes spiritual and existential needs are not assessed or taken into account. And these patients in general are much less likely to have advanced care planning in part because the conversation doesn't happen early on in the disease course when patients are able to engage in these discussions. Because of this poor advanced care planning and the way our health system works, these patients are much more likely to have aggressive interventions at the end of life, which they may or may not have desired. And so this is another study looking at Italian patients in nursing homes with advanced dementia. And they just looked at interventions that happened to these patients. It was retrospective, 30 days prior to death, and then 48 hours prior to death. And what they found was these patients received a lot of antibiotics. Almost three-quarters of the patient had antibiotics in the last 30 days. Most of them also had it in the last 48 hours. These patients got a lot of IV fluids. Um, distressing to me is a lot of these patients, more than half of them, were restrained in the last 60 days of their life. We also saw a fair number of tube feedings. One out of five patients received tube feedings in this end-of-life period. And I think you could say that a lot of these interventions have the potential to cause distress and suffering for patients. IV hydration, physical restraints, antibiotics, which are often given IV or IM. 
They also looked at symptoms that occurred with these patients um, in the last 30 days of life, and 88% experienced at least one severe symptoms. Most of them experienced multiple symptoms in the last 30 days of life. They were able to identify a subset of patients. Almost one out of five patients, they found this sort of premorbid symptom cluster of hypotension, drowsiness, this death rattle, and dyspnea that occurred in the last 48 hours of life. So sort of when they saw this cluster, they were able to say, okay, these patients are really nearing the end of their life. But you'll see by looking at this graph that, you know, more than half of the patients had, had a symptom of fever. Almost half the patients had problems with dyspnea, shortness of breath. You saw bed sores were very common. Pain was also very common, as was vomiting and edema, restlessness, and then fatigue. So this is not dying easily or gently necessarily. These patients also experience symptoms and are uncomfortable. So the study also illustrated two other interesting facts. So the first is the fact that looking back through these charts, end-of-life wishes were rarely, essentially never documented. And the other fact was that dementia was never mentioned as a cause of death in any of the death certificates, which I find concerning. And I think it also helps to propagate what I mentioned before, that we don't consider dementia a terminal illness when it actually is. While these patients died of complications from the dementia, they died of pneumonia or sepsis or malnutrition, the causes of those were the dementia and the inability of the body to protect itself because of the dementia from these secondary illnesses and secondary conditions. So this is another study looking at medication use in nursing homes. They looked at 34 patients um, with dementia who were eligible for hospice. Of those patients, they were on a total combined of 222 medications. Um, the average patient was taking seven medications a day. 18% were taking over 10 medications a day. And almost one out of three were taking at least one medication that was on the Bears criteria or believed should never be appropriate in elderly patients or patients with dementia. So this is sort of a standard look across a nursing home. And so sometimes people say, well, you get hospice in, and they stop all medications. And so somebody decided to look at this. In Australia, they looked at 260 patients with dementia who were admitted to hospice. And what did they discover? Looking at medication uses, they discovered that medications for comorbid medical conditions decreased. And so people had these medications taken off as the time to death approached. However, medications for symptom management increased. And so I think we can take this as a surrogate marker that when hospice gets involved, we have better symptom management because these patients are now being put on more medications to help manage symptoms, which I'm hoping is a surrogate that we're recognizing the symptoms, so we're actually treating them. The other thing is that the medications on the beers list increased, and some of that is because the medications we use to manage symptoms at the end of life a lot of them are on the bears list. So those are our opioids, those are our benzodiazepines, those are our um, anti-secretion medications, the scopolamine and the robinol. And so overall, with hospice involvement, what they found was that the total number of medications increased, but the intentions of those medications changed. 
So now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about common symptoms at the end of life. So all of these symptoms can be seen at the end of life. I highlighted in yellow the ones we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail, in part because I think they're more common to patients with dementia, and they're things that are often, often overlooked. So pain. Um, pain's actually a pretty rough one. So looking at patients in just a nursing home, 26% of them reported daily pain. And of those patients, one out of four had no orders for any type of analgesic on their chart at all. So we have patients who are saying they hurt every day, yet they have no option to any kind of pain medication. And the other thing we know is over time, as cognitive impairment increases, the amount of pain medication that patients receive decrease. So a more recent study that I didn't document here actually looked at patients and behaviors. So patients with advanced, moderate and advanced dementia, they started by giving them all Tylenol and seeing what happened with behaviors. And lo and behold, they noticed that a number of the behaviors improved. They then ratcheted it up to giving daily um, oxycodone. And they looked at behaviors. And in a subset of patients, um, behaviors improved. And then they took those patients who still had behaviors and again, increased the oxycodone. And again, another subset of them improved. And so what the authors concluded from the study is that by treating pain, even when you're not aware that the patient is necessarily in pain, you can often have an improvement in troubling behaviors of dementia. So some pain pearls, um, things that I've learned through years of, of practice with these patients. The um, following the WHO ladder can certainly be helpful using scheduled Tylenol in patients that you think are uncomfortable or have reason to be uncomfortable or are having new behaviors can be very helpful. And then one thing we all know is in nursing homes, PRN medications are only as good as the nurse and the people who are working there in the sense that they have to notice the discomfort, then they have to have time to treat the discomfort. These patients, patients with dementia, are not good advocates for themselves. Um, especially when they're in pain. So scheduling something can be much more beneficial. The other thing I'll often try, particularly when I think somebody's uncomfortable, or if I think that a change in behavior or a problem behavior may be due to unrecognized or unexpressed pain, is to use a trial of low-dose methadone. Um, and when I say low-dose, I mean 2.5 milligrams every night or even every other night. And I do this in a time-limited trial fashion in the sense of I think about the behavior I'm targeting, so maybe I'm targeting vocalizations, and I will start the methadone with the plan of looking at vocalizations in two weeks. If vocalizations have improved, I'll continue the methadone. If they haven't improved, I may try something different. Um, but I don't start the medication with the intention of keeping it on forever. I start it with the intention of treating something specific, so doing a time-limited trial. Another good opioid in elderly patients or patients with renal impairment is hydromorphone or dilated because it's not metabolized by the kidneys. And so you get less of those toxic metabolites that you can get from using other opioids such as morphine or oxycontin or oxycodone. So one of the nurses that I worked with for years um, had, had a little saying, the hand that writes for the opioid is the hand that writes for the bowel regimen. So anytime you put an, a patient on an opioid medication, you need to also put them on a bowel med 
medication as well. Um, we're using a lot of Miralax if the patients can tolerate that and they'll actually drink, you know, four to eight ounces in the morning. It's a great medication. Otherwise, I use Senna. I don't tend to recommend Colace because if you look at the actual data and the studies, it's no more effective than placebo. It's just a, just a pretty little red pill or a little pretty red liquid, um, but it doesn't actually work to help with uh, constipation. And then finally, patients that you need who are at the end of life to start an opioid on for pain or for dyspnea, I recommend concentrated morphine elixir. And that's a morphine solution that comes 20 milligrams per cc. So you can give a high dose in a relatively small amount. And it can just be given buccally right into the cheek um, or under the tongue. And it either trickles down the throat that way or it absorbs buccally to get good pain relief. And starting doses are 5 to 10 milligrams every hour as needed. Um, I'd like to make sure you dose every hour because you, if you look at the C-max of these medications, they really peak in 15 minutes and then they start wearing off with a half-life of about an hour. And so if you don't dose it often enough, you end up in that undulating, you know, pain-treated pain, pain-treated pain that's so hard to treat in patients. If you're worried about the dose, start with two and a half milligrams, um, but just use something. Morphine is very effective for pain and dyspnea at the end of life. So delirium, this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. We see lots and lots of delirium in patients with dementia. So what is it? So this is this, I mean, it's essentially brain failure. It's this fluctuating mental status with problems with attention or concentration. Sometimes they have hallucinations, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the hallucinations are pleasant, sometimes they're not. Um, but delirium is very, very common. Unfortunately, we need a high index of suspicion or we often miss it, um, particularly in demented patients where the delirium is often hypoactive. Um, how common is it in, in patients with dementia? We don't know for sure, but I believe it's very common. I know in patients at end of life, even without dementia, it's as common as 85 to 90 percent. And even with patients with dementia where you're focusing on a comfort-oriented care, you can still treat the delirium without doing a medical workup that can be uncomfortable. So what do I mean by that? So a good medication review, a good physical exam helps me find, I'd say, 90% of the causes of delirium. So did they just start on a Benadryl because of a rash, and so they're delirious because of the anticholinergics? Have they had a little bit of a cold, so they've stopped really drinking, and on exam, they're dry, so are they delirious because they're dehydrated? Do they have a fever and a cough? Are they getting a pneumonia? Are they hypoxic? You can do these things by looking at medications and doing a physical exam, and then you can start to treat those causes. Um, and in patients with dementia and at the end of life, some of the best treatments you can do are non-pharmacological um, treatments. And I'd say there's no reason to not do them because they cause zero harm and they can be beneficial. So delirium screening tools, how do I know to think about delirium? Um, so the first thing is, is there a change from baseline? And the nurses, the family, the people who are around are the people who are going to give you this information. Is there a new behavioral change? In patients with dementia who are elderly, often we see a hypoactive delirium. So are they less active? Have their days and nights gotten confused? And then there's a screening tool called the CAM Confusion Assessment Method, ICU version. 
And I like this one because it has some very simple neuropsychiatric tests built into it. And if you Google CAM-ICU, you can find it. Um, Vanderbilt, there is the ICU delirium site. It has videos and it talks you right through how to do them. It's actually very simple. And then some other simple bedside neuropsych tests that you can do or have your nurse do um, are listed below at the bottom of the slide. So a simple one, or actually they go down from sort of level of difficulty to, to ease. So the clock draw, that's something we use for, you know, mild to moderate dementia, but it's only really helpful in patients that you have a baseline in. And so I recommend that everybody who comes into a care center have a baseline clock draw at admission. Um, it gives you something to compare it to. And if it has a sudden and acute change, you know you might be looking at delirium. The other thing I often do is I ask patients to tell me the days of the week forward and the days of the week backwards. And this works well, again, for mild and slightly moderate dementia. And then even more simple is asking patients to count, counting from 1 to 10 and then 10 back down to 1. So counting is one of those earliest things that we learned, um, and it's maintained even in moderate and even to some degree into more severe dementia. And so patients with dementia should be able to count for you from 1 to 10, and they should be able to count for you from 10 back down to 1. If they can't, you need to start thinking about delirium. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with the slide, but it's, it's included here for um, completion's sake because it's often difficult for people to tell the difference between dementia and delirium. And, you know, dementia is that slow, insidious, progressive decline over years, typically, while delirium is this acute and sudden change from baseline. And so that's how I like to think of it. Delirium is this change, while dementia is a slow decline. And it's important to tell the difference because you can reverse delirium. Um, even patients who are actively dying and experiencing delirium in the last week of life, you can reverse that 50% of the time, which improves quality of life, symptom management, and just helps make everything easier. So I know I mentioned non-pharmacological treatment, so there is no reason not to ever do non-pharmacological treatment. So what types are there? So there's cognitive um, stimulation or orientation. So when you walk into the room, introduce yourself. Say, hi, I'm Michelle. I'm your nurse's aide. Good morning. That helps orient them to the time of the day. Orienting to seasons can be helpful. I'm less concerned about the day of the week, particularly in somebody who lives in a care center, because those days sort of just run together. Promoting regular sleep. So having a sleep routine, using non-pharmacological sleep aids, so things like relaxing music, massage, warm milk, warm herbal teas before bed, making sure the environment is conducive to sleep. Are the lights turned off? Are the blinds closed? Are they getting um, their nighttime medications before they're going to bed? Um, are the nurses too loud at the nurse's station? Is that waking people up? And then mobility, keeping people as mobile as possible helps with delirium. Do they have their visual aids? Do they have their glasses? Are they wearing them? Do they have their hearing aids? Are they wearing them? Is their ear occluded with wax? Sometimes things just as simple as taking wax out of an ear can help improve um, cognitive status. I mentioned oral volume um, repletion for dehydration because it's easy to do, it's effective, but yet we don't do it very well. So what do I mean by that? I mean having the patient's beverage of choice, ideally non-caffeinated, available. So every time you go into the room, good morning, Mrs. Smith. I'm Michelle, your aide. Um, I see you have some orange juice here. Would you like a sip? 
and then giving them something to drink. So training everyone when they walk into a room to help keep people hydrated. There's also been some studies using music for um, post-op delirium, but you know, just music in general can be helpful. What's that old saying? Music tames the savage beast. And how about medical treatment of delirium? So there's some things you can do without adding medications. So medication simplification. So looking at the medications and saying, okay, do you still need this? Um, is this one that potentially can cause delirium? And the pharmacist can certainly help with this if you need help. But sometimes medications that were appropriate five years ago we're no longer, as we get older, able to metabolize as well, or we're storing them in a different way. Um, and so even though someone may have been on something for a period of time, they no longer tolerate it now. Opioid rotation, if you have somebody who's on an opioid, simply changing to a different opioid, so some morphine to Oxycontin can be very helpful, um, in part because of incomplete cross-tolerance, when you take and change opioids, you can usually decrease the total dose by about 25%. Uh, the other thing is, sometimes I consider artificial hydration. Usually these are in patients who have a clear goal and I'm targeting something in particular. There's mixed evidence as to whether this helps or not with terminal delirium but I have found it beneficial. I don't put IVs in these people. I actually use subcutaneous buttons and use a very old technique called hypodermocolysis, and that's where you run fluid at a relatively slow rate into the skin. So you put it in the abdomen, you can do it in the upper back, the upper legs, um, and the fluid goes into the skin through this little tiny sub-Q button, which is essentially the button that um, diabetics use for insulin pumps. It's got a little flange and then a little quarter-inch button, or not button, but needle, tiny needle that just goes right under the surface of the skin. If they pull it out, it's no problem. It doesn't tend to get infected. Um, and it's a great way to give, to give some fluids, especially with older people who have poor IV access. And then if needed, you can do a trial of neuroleptics. So there are no medications that are FDA approved for the treatment of delirium. However, we tend to use antipsychotics. I tend to like the older ones. They have the most research, they're inexpensive, and we sort of know side effects. Um, so low-dose Haldol can be effective. Uh, for patients who have an agitated delirium, I may try um, chlorpromazine or thorazine um, because it's a little bit more sedating. And I've been known to actually dose these as a continuous sub-Q infusion. So like you would give a PCA for chronic pain, I may give a Thorazine PCA for chronic um, delirium. And I've had some really good luck uh, doing this with some older demented folks who've had delirium and bad behavioral problems. The one caveat I want to say is you do not see benzodiazepines here, and that is on purpose. Benzodiazepines are not indicated. In fact, they can worsen delirium unless you know you have a terminal delirium. And when I say terminal delirium, I mean a delirium that's present because somebody is actively dying. So if you have someone who is actively dying and showing signs of actively dying, using a benzodiazepine to help control a delirium is appropriate. It is not appropriate at any other time because it can make that delirium significantly worse. And so delirium often causes behavioral disturbances in patients with dementia. 
In addition, patients with dementia do have behavioral disturbances without having delirium. So what are some of those? So disruptive physical behaviors. Sometimes people wander, they pace, they may be phys physically threatening, or they may be violent, they may be actually threatening. They may have verbal behaviors, they may be outbursts, or they may have disruptive vocalizations. And I think those are some of the hardest to manage. So what do you want to do? So try to figure out what's causing the aggravation and then remove it if you can. Think about things that are can cause discomfort. So is the patient in pain? Is there a medical condition that's acting up? Are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Are there things like baths that are really upsetting? So maybe the, the pattern at the care center is to give a bath Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and baths are really upsetting. So why do you need to do a bath three times a week? Maybe you can agree to do a bath once a week or once every two weeks. It's also important to remember that this is not the time to teach. Patients with dementia don't have the capacity to be logical or to necessarily learn or understand new things. It's much better to try to distract and to get them doing something else. How about some common psychiatric symptoms in dementia? So we often see personality changes. We can see apathy. We can see irritability. We see mood changes. They're often sort of withdraw and lose interest in doing things. And we see psychosis of varying forms. And so what psychiatric things do we see? We see anxiety, we see depression, we see suspiciousness and delusions and paranoia. We see agitation and hallucinations. So just to give a little more detail on some of these. So anxiety, I typically see this earlier on in patients with dementia, and as the dementia progresses, the anxiety improves. We often see it with depressive symptoms, but these are the patients that are just really apprehensive. They don't really know where they are. They don't know when they are. They don't know sometimes who they are. Um, oftentimes, they feel like they need to do something, but they don't know what it is they need to do. Um, they're easily distracted. They may have repetitive motions. They may have hand wringing. They may have pacing. And some of those repetitive motions are things that I do see more later in the um, dementia that can be a marker of sort of unable to be defined or expressed anxiety. How about depression? So again, this is a little bit challenging because the beginning stages of Alzheimer's look a lot like people are depressed. They often become flat. They often become apathetic. They may be tearful. They lose interest in things. Um, Depression is often a little bit more because oftentimes they have problems with appetite and weight loss. They may have problems with sleep. They may be irritable and anxious. So what do we do about these mood symptoms? So SSRI medications are a great way to start. So using low-dose citalopram or low-dose Zoloft every day can certainly help relieve some of the anxiety and depression that goes hand-in-hand -hand with dementia. There's also been a recent study looking at citalopram particularly patients with moderate and severe dementia to treat behavioral issues. And they found that low-dose citalopram, 10 milligrams a day, helped decrease behaviors, troubling um, behaviors in patients with moderate and advanced dementia. I'm not really sure why that is, but it certainly could be that these patients aren't able to express anxiety and dep depression in a way that we can understand, so they express them through their behaviors. We treat that underlying anxiety, depression, and their behaviors improve. So other medications that can be used, um, mirtazapine or Remeron, 
is very commonly used. You use the low dose at bedtime because it helps with sleep um, and it can help stimulate appetite. So metazapine is a funny medication. It's anticholinergic at lower doses. And so the lower dose is more sedating than the higher dose. If I have somebody that's too sedated, I actually push the dose of mirtazapine to help with that. Bupropion can be used to help increase energy and to treat um, depression. I don't use it as much for anxiety because it can be a little bit stimulating because it acts at the dopamine center and um, anxiety can get worse. But one caveat with Welbutrin is you need to be cautious because it can increase your seizure risk. Um, and then another medication you're going to see mentioned a whole bunch as we go through this is Trazodone or Deseril, and a low dose at bedtime can help people sleep. Um, it can help with restlessness, and I often recommend using a very low dose during the day for patients who are really anxious. So 12.5 to 25 milligrams every four hours for anxiety can be very helpful during the day without making them too sleepy. And then I also put on uh, tricyclic antidepressants. I think they're good medications, and I don't shy away from them. I just use lower doses in older folks. And I do try to avoid amitriptyline because it's a dirtier medication. Nortriptyline, I think, is a better, better option. And there is some newer evidence using doxepin in lower doses for sleep in older folks. So how about psychosis and dementia? So it's not uncommon for patients with dementia or with delirium superimposed on dementia to have psychosis. Oftentimes they have persecutory delusions or they're paranoid. They can have fluctuations, and there's a lot of misperceptions. So if you stop and look at some of these misperceptions, maybe they're not all that far off. So oftentimes people will say they think their belongings are being moved or being stolen. When you look in a care center, the aide comes in and cleans the room and they move things. There's other confused residents who may come in and take things. So they may be saying these, which really have a basis in reality. Or this feeling that the food is poisoned or isn't safe, again, this may have a basis in reality. We often crush the pills for older folks because they don't swallow so well, and we mix it with what? Applesauce, ice cream, and that makes them not taste like applesauce or ice cream. In fact, most of those pills taste pretty awful. That stuff tastes terrible. And so somebody who has limited cognitive ability doesn't understand why their chocolate ice cream suddenly tastes like something other than chocolate ice cream. So what do we want to do for psychosis? So this isn't some time to argue or point out the truth. Um, if you can reassure, sometimes I play into these um, delusions or distracting to something pleasant, you can often stop a problem behavior from developing. So one example I give is I walked into a room with an older woman who asked me, are you here for the party? I said, what party? She goes, well, every night that ceiling tile comes off and these little kids and little ponies come down from the come down from the ceiling with balloons, and we all have a party together. So you're here for the party? Um, and I said, no, I'm not here for the party, but call me and let me come in tonight so I can be part of your party. So had I argued with her about having a party, we might not have gotten someplace, or we would have been at a very different place uh, versus just sort of playing along with it. This is also a time where I believe, and I'm a proponent for therapeutic lying, so sometimes you have somebody with dementia whose spouse or child or sister or somebody who has died, and they can't remember that fact. This is a time to say, you know what, Jane? I'm sorry that um, your husband's not here right now. 
he's want, run to the store, why don't you come over and help me with my paperwork, or why don't you go and sit and do this activity? So not telling them repeatedly, so they repeatedly relive the pain that their husband has died, but rather telling them that their husband is out. Um, other things with psychosis, you want to look at the symptoms. Um, are they visual symptoms? Are they tactile? Are they delusions? Are they misperceptions? One example I like to use is in the hospital. We had a woman who was convinced that the angel of death every night came over and stood over her bed and just haunted her. And this went on for a number of nights. She couldn't sleep. She was getting more confused. This wasn't going well, except until one night when the resident walked in and realized that they weren't closing the blinds. And so there was a shadow coming in that the resident said on the wall actually looked like it could be this large hovering sort of figure. So we closed the blinds, the shadow went away, and the woman got better. Um, she was able to sleep because she didn't have this misperception any longer and she wasn't fearful. Um, the other thing with psychosis is you need to look at their medications or illnesses. Basically, do they have an underlying delirium that you could treat that's causing the psychosis? So medications for psychosis. You know, I mentioned trazodone before. Low dose at bedtime can be helpful, or again, low dose during the day, um, particularly if there's anxiety or restlessness associated with the, the psychosis. Um, and then low dose antipsychotics can be helpful. Tend to dose them at bedtime. Their half-life is about 24 hours, so you really only need to dose them every 24 hours. Um, I have some of the older ones listed here. Um, you can certainly use some of the newer ones, but again, there's no evidence that they're more effective than the older ones, and they tend to cost more, and they have a different series of, of side effects. So I just wanted to talk briefly about interventions that are ineffective at the end of life. So we've known for over 30 years that tube feeding is not effective for patients with advanced dementia. It doesn't prevent aspiration, and it does not prolong life. Where tube feeding is effective is in patients who have things like head and neck cancer, where they have a functional obstruction. Um, in those cases, tube feeding can prolong life. However, in dementia, it is not helpful. And these studies, are, they truly are like 30 years old, um, and they've redone them, and there's no difference. And they do cause uh, distress, uh, tube feedings, uh, pain and discomfort, um, as well as delirium and an increased incidence of people being uh, restrained and tied down. Um, other things that are really shown to be ineffective at the end of life in patients with severe dementia are antibiotics. Um, you saw in the earlier studies that up to three quarters of patients received antibiotics in the last two weeks of life. Had they been effective, the patients wouldn't have necessarily died. Um, these patients often have asymptomatic bacteria, and these are not reasons to use antibiotics either. And the other thing we're noticing is patients with severe dementia at the end of life, oral supplements don't tend to be effective, neither do appetite stimulants. So I just want to talk a little bit more about antibiotics since it is such a big thing and it's such a strong part of our culture. And there are risks to it that we don't consider. So there is a public health risk for using um, antibiotics indiscriminately. We are fostering antibiotic resistance, um, and this may become more and more of a, a problem in the future. And the benefits to individual patients with advanced dementia is actually quite low. So when we looked at um, over 200 nursing home patients with advanced dementia over the course of a year, 
two out of three of those patients received at least one course of antibiotics during that year, and many of them received multiple courses of antibiotics. And we're not using the old meds. We're using the uh, big hitters. We're using the quinolones in our third-generation cephalosporins. Um, and the other thing that they noticed in that study was that the majority of the antibiotics were given in the two weeks prior to death. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we're not good at recognizing when a patient with advanced dementia is dying and then moving the treatment course towards comfort and allowing that natural death. Rather, we keep trying to interfere and trying to um, medicate them better. And uh, that study I mentioned before from the Italian nursing homes, 71%, so almost three-quarters of the residents received antibiotics in the last 48 hours of life. So how do I talk about antibiotics with patients and families, typically with families at this point? Um, I educate and I talk about goals of care. And I let them know that antibiotics may not be able to achieve either the goal of life prolongation or the relief of symptoms. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So antibiotics have the potential to add suffering, particularly if they have to go to the hospital to get them, or if we're doing them IV or we're doing them IM, which we often are or if we're trying to ask somebody who has problems swallowing to, to swallow this large pill. So they might not be helpful. And I often find uh, magical thinking among families is, you know what, we just treat this pneumonia, we give them these antibiotics, and grandma's going to be back to where she was, you know, five years ago before she had the dementia. They sort of grasp at straws and they're hoping for that miracle cure. And so having sort of nuanced and honest discussions that antibiotics might actually treat this pneumonia. Pneumonia, there's no actually good evidence it will, but it might, but it won't bring grandma back to anything other than where she was before she got the pneumonia. It's not this magic cure. So what data do I have that says antibiotics aren't necessarily indicated in patients with severe dementia? So looking at fever episodes in 104 nursing home patients with Alzheimer's, this is back in 1990, a while ago, they found no difference in survival among those with advanced dementia treated with antibiotics and those treated with intensive comfort measures. So it didn't matter whether they got antibiotics or not, they lived the same amount of time. And a more recent study um, showed that antibiotic treatment was not more effective than Tylenol or oxygen in alleviating suffering in patients with dementia. So antibiotics are sort of a gut reflex and I challenge people to stop and think about it. Um, are you looking at somebody with severe dementia who's at the end of their life, and is this antibiotic going to meet the patient or family goals? And so how do we help control symptoms in patients with dementia, particularly at the end of their life? So I'm going to put out two ideas. One is palliative care, and the second is hospice. And I'm going to talk about both of those briefly. So palliative care is a specialized team-based approach for patients with serious or life-limiting illnesses. It's focused on the relief of symptoms, the treatment of pain, or the stress from a serious illness. It focuses on supporting both the patient and family, whatever the diagnosis is. And it focuses on defining patient and family goals so that the medical care is aligned with what the patient and family actually want. And the goal of palliative care is to improve quality of life for everybody who's involved with the patient. And so how did we used to look at this time period? So it used to be that with medical illnesses, we would focus on 
life prolonging care. We would realize the patient is dying, we'd enroll them in hospice, maybe, maybe not, and that would be that. Now, what we're proposing and what we're moving towards is at the time of diagnosis, you're focusing on life prolonging care, appropriately so, with some attention being paid to palliative care, to saying, okay, you have this life limiting this terminal or this serious illness, we're going to focus on quality of life and relief of suffering at the same time that we're looking at trying to cure things if we can, or prolong things if that's your wish. And as that disease progresses, we spend less time trying to prolong it and more time, more energy focused on comfort and relief of suffering until we believe it's no longer appropriate to try to extend life and we want to focus solely on comfort. And at that point, that's when it's appropriate to get hospice involved. So then hospice gets involved, the patient dies, and the family members still have 13 months of bereavement services. And I'd like to talk a little bit about palliative care and hospice. So palliative care is this big umbrella. Hospice is just one piece of that umbrella. So non-hospice palliative care, it's appropriate at any time in a serious illness. You provide it at the same time you're doing life prolonging treatment. There's no prognostic requirement. You don't have to choose between treatment options. It's really just a philosophy of care that we all should be offering to all of our patients at any time. How about hospice? Hospice is a form of palliative care that's appropriate for patients at the end of their lives when they are no longer focused on curative or life prolonging treatment. To enroll in prospice, you need to have two physicians certify a prognosis of less than six months, and the patient gives up their insurance coverage for that medical diagnosis only for the hospice diagnosis for curative treatment. And the hospice becomes responsible for everything related to that diagnosis for keeping them comfortable and managing symptoms. And so palliative care, why do you want to get it involved early and how can it help? So early in dementia, I think it's a great time to get palliative care involved because they can start to work on advanced directives. They can start to talk about goals. They can start the conversation about education. Um, how does dementia progress? What does the dying process look like as they sort of move along in helping support this family? They provide family support. They're experts at managing symptoms and at thinking about symptoms and looking for symptoms. They're well-versed at looking at medications and you know having a fresh look and saying, hey, wait a second. Here you've got somebody with advanced dementia. They're still on their statin. They haven't had any cardiac issues in 10 years. Do we really need this medication? And the other piece where I think palliative care and a palliative care approach can be invaluable is in prognostication. And the thing to remember is palliative care is appropriate at any time in the disease trajectory. Any disease where a patient has something that's life-limiting, palliative care is appropriate. And so for some patients, that might actually be something as simple as diabetes, because in some patients, diabetes is very life-limiting. And so now I'd like to talk about different trajectories for death and why it's hard to predict death in patients with dementia. So the top part there shows the trajectory of death with dementia versus on the bottom, we've got cancer and organ system failure. So what you see on the left side is function. So patients at the end of life with dementia, they have a very low level of function. 
and they tend to just sort of fluctuate along that low level. And sometimes that low level is so low, it's hard to tell, you know, sort of when death is. They're dependent on all the ADLs. I've had dementia patients who just lay in bed all day and they never get up, but they're still willing to eat. And so they're staying fed. And so they just exist in that state sometimes for years. And it's really hard to know when death is near, when they're just fluctuating at that low level. And this is in contrast to cancer. I mean, cancer is sort of easy to predict in the sense of people are at a high level of function and usually they hit a drop-off point where the cancer sort of takes over. And so I know if somebody is bedbound um, or in their chair more than 50% of the time and has cancer, metastatic cancer, that they likely have less than 12 weeks to live. And so we have a very different conversation at that point. And the same thing with organ failure. Organ failure is sort of midway between the two. So somebody with end-stage heart disease or end-stage COPD, they you know, have an impaired level of function. They get sick and they have a dip in their level of function, but it doesn't come quite back to baseline with treatment. And they continue to do that. And they continue to decline until you have that final episode. And sometimes it's hard to tell when that final episode is actually going to happen. But when you start seeing this pattern of dips and improvement but not to baseline and dips and improvement but not to baseline, that's the time to start thinking that, you know, death is, is moving, becoming closer. And hospice might be appropriate. So why hospice? Why hospice for dementia patients? Why hospice for nursing home patients? Because we know, and I'm just quoting one study here, there's been numerous studies that show that the quality of care for patients with dementia improve when hospice gets involved. Families feel that their patients have better symptom control, and they feel like they have better care when hospice is involved. And so what's the goal of hospice? The goal is an accompanied death for patients and their families, if that's what they want. I think the other goal of hospice is to help patients and families live as fully as possible in the time that they have left. And so hospice doesn't focus on dying. It actually focuses on living and helping people live and enjoy life as much as they can in the time that they have. And part of how they do that is excellent symptom control. So this is looking at patients when they're getting enrolled in nursing homes. So a study assessed patients at time of enrollment to a care center with dementia and found that one of them were at the end of life or close to dying at time of 1% close to dying at the time of admission. And that of the patients who are enrolled, 70% die within the first six months. Looking at these numbers, it would be reasonable whenever you have a new dementia patient admitted to a care center, not for rehab, but for custodial care, to consider a hospice referral. Because there is a almost three-quarters chance, three out of four of them, will die within that first six months, which would put them at a prognosis which was hospice eligible. So when do you want to think about hospice? So in general, and this is about anybody, you've got the rule of thumb, um, and they've actually done studies to look at the rule of thumb, and it's pretty effective. If you think that this patient isn't going to be alive in six months, think about referring to hospice. But other sort of physical functional signs, when somebody's got moved to a bed-to-chair existence, if they have advancing stage 4 cancer, if they're um, short of breath at rest, either because of cardiac disease or lung disease, um, and in the cases of patients with dementia, if they're incontinent bowel or bladder, they're down to six words or less, 
or patients who are losing 10% of their weight in six months. And this is an unintentional weight loss. So how about dementia in particular? When do you refer to hospice? When somebody has a functional assessment scale of seven or beyond, and we'll talk about that in the next slide. Basically, these are patients who are dependent on all of their ADLs, they're incontinent, they're unable to have any meaningful communication, and they've had some sort of life-threatening infection in the previous 12 months, or some sort of evidence that they're unable to protect the integrity of their body. So infection is one way to look at that, skin breakdown, uh, bed sores, or weight loss. Those are all signs that the patient with dementia is, is starting to move down that, that dying process. So this is the FAST scale. It's what's most commonly used by hospices. And so it starts all the way up at one, people who you and I have no difficulties, and then it moves to forgetful, and then it moves to needing more and more help with first activities of daily living, and then needing full assistance and having incontinence. At 7A is when we think of somebody as being hospice appropriate, and that's requiring help with all ADLs, um, being incontinent, and a limited ability to speak. And so the FAST scale says six words or less. I think particularly in patients with vascular dementia, they may maintain more words, but they're unable to communicate their needs. And so that's how I look at this. If somebody's unable to communicate their needs to me, they're more likely than not a 7A and hospice appropriate. And so why is this FAST scale helpful? So it helps us out with prognosis. So if somebody has a FAST of 7A, and that's the inability to communicate, we know their survival is about seven months. If their FAST is down to 7C, they can no longer walk, we know their survival is only about three months. And so it helps us line up when somebody may be hospice appropriate. So that's sort of the end of my talk, but I'm just going to recap a little bit. Um, so where did we start things? We started things with the fact that dementia is this progressive neurodegenerative brain illness that's life-limiting. It's a terminal illness. It's becoming more common in our society, and patients with dementia have very complex needs that we're not doing a good job of treating. Um, we're not managing symptoms such as pain, and we're subjecting these patients to burdensome interventions in the final days of their life. And for some patients, they actually want these interventions, and that's fine. But when you talk to people before they're demented, they often say, there is no way I would like to be like that. Please don't do those things to me. And so what do I want you to take home from this talk? So, you know, back on my soapbox, I want you to discuss goals early in the disease course. So sit down and talk with patients and families with dementia and say, hey, we need to plan for the future. We know how this progresses. And we know you're going to get to the point where you're not able to make medical decisions and not able to actively engage in your care. And I know this is really scary, but help us make sure that what's important to you is honored at the end of your life. You need to aggressively monitor and treat symptoms in patients with dementia. You need to look for pain. You need to look for dyspnea. You need to look for bed sores. And you need to treat them um, when you find them. And when you have unexplained behaviors, look for delirium. Look for pain. Treat these things. Um, using palliative care principles, which is good symptom management, and having goals of care discussions can improve outcomes. 
And think about hospice as an option when patients require assistance with all their ADLs and they can't effectively communicate their needs, or if there's been some sort of sudden condition change. So I just want to say thank you very much for your time and attention, and I hope I wasn't too sedating and people were able to stay awake. Have a great day. Bye-bye.